Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Over the next few weeks, we'll be talking about the death and the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. God to stir your heart if you're a born-again child of God, knowing that God in His love sent His Son to die for our sins, offering us eternal life. What an amazing thought. Matthew chapter 26, let's begin reading in verse 1. It came to pass... When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and the people under the palace of the high priest who is called Caiaphas. Now how foolish does this appear to be? Look what they were trying to do. They consulted that they might take Jesus by subtility, and kill him like that could happen you're talking about God in the flesh in secret we're going to take you and kill you you won't even know about our plans <laughs> well he knew about your plans from the beginning of time verse skip down to verse 45 then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them sleep on now Take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. As we look at Christ's death, we do understand Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Son of God, although he took on human flesh. He was 100% God. I'm thankful that we have the scriptures, the inspired, preserved. Amen. In Aaron, infallible word of God in our hands. And we know without a doubt, this is speaking of divinity. Matthew 1, verse 21 says this, She shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us now here's what we do know without a doubt this was God in the flesh as we look at his death three very clear facts jump off the pages of scripture number one is that there was a complete foreknowledge of his death this was no surprise to the Lord Jesus Christ it caught the disciples off guard. Although he had prophesied and although they had read the prophecies concerning his death, it still caught the disciples off guard. But not one thing, not one moment, not one of the occurrences surrounding his crucifixion caught him by surprise. And we also see there was an unwavering commitment to Calvary. He was focused. He knew this was his purpose. This is why he would come. He wouldn't stop one day, one moment short of Calvary. And then the fact that he was in complete control over the details concerning his death. No human can control the details concerning his death, but the Lord Jesus Christ did just that. Now go with me to Matthew chapter 16, and let's review for just a moment the misunderstandings and misconceptions concerning Christ during his earthly ministry. You must understand that when the Jews had read uh, and were knowledgeable concerning the prophecies of their coming Messiah, most truly did not believe that they would actually see him in their lifetime. So when he does arrive, when he begins to preach and perform miracles, 
most were skeptical. Some blatantly denied that this could be the Christ, the fact that he was from Nazareth, the fact that he was a simple carpenter, the fact that he was the son of Joseph and Mary. They couldn't fathom that this was God in the flesh. Now, this text in Matthew 16 is the third year of his ministry. Most of the disciples have been with him now for an extended period of time. Look what conversation takes place in verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now once again, he reiterates that he is God in the flesh. He is the Son of God, the Son of Man. But he asks, what are men saying about me? And look at the confusion. They said, some say, thou art John the Baptist. Some Elias and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. This alone is a compliment. The fact that some said John the Baptist. This was a man who was very bold, very clear. This is the one that stood up, looked the Pharisees in the face and said, generation of vipers. So he's a man of courage. But others said, no, he is Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a man of compassion, the weeping prophet. But look what he asks them, verse 15, he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon, the one that was always answering the questions, usually putting his foot in his mouth, this time speaks through by divine revelation. What does he say? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the disciples should have applauded and said, Peter, you finally said something proper and appropriate. Look at this. But this was a divine revelation, uh, once again confirming that they had an idea. Now, you do have to understand that the disciples, although they were looking at the very Son of God, although they were trying to understand this, there was still a little bit of confusion in their minds. And this same man, the same Peter that stood there and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Look what happens moments later, verse 22. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Now let me ask you this. If you have just come to the conclusion that this is God in the flesh, how dare you? How dare you pull him aside after his next statement, after Christ's following teaching, Peter pulls him aside and says, I don't think that was a good outline. You know, I like point number three, the resurrection, but point number one about the crucifixion, I think you ought to rearrange that next time you preach it and go a different direction. Why was Peter rebuking him in verse 21? From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem, suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. And then Peter took him and began to rebuke him. So let me ask you this. If a man looks at Christ and makes this confession, thou art the Christ, the very Son of God, you are divinity, if he truly understands what he is saying, would he minutes later take that same person aside and rebuke him? I dare say no. If you truly understand, you are face to face with the creator of the universe, the king of kings, lord of lords, 
the perfect one, the sinless lamb, God in the flesh, the Messiah, you would not have the audacity to pull him aside and not correct, but rebuke, not instruct, but rebuke the very Son of God. So do you see the misunderstanding that's taking place, the confusion that is going on in their minds? Here's what he does, once again reemphasizing his death, Matthew 17, verse 22. While they abode in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men. They shall kill him on the third day, and he shall be raised again. So Christ knew the details of his death. But in their misconception, here's what God was going to do in chapter 17. He was going to confirm once again in the hearts and minds of Peter, James, and John that this was the very Son of God. Chapter 17 goes over the transfiguration. Look what it says in verse 1. After six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured. Now, here's what is taking place. Jesus Christ, at this very moment, is revealed in his heavenly glory. His face did shine as the sun, his raiment was as white as the light, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elias talking with him. Now, the sister text to this, go with me, keep your finger here for just a minute, and go with me to Luke chapter 9, because it tells us what Moses and Elijah were talking about when they spoke to Christ. Luke chapter 9, verse 30. Behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake. What were they speaking of? his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, there was no question in their, in their minds that Christ had come to give his life, to shed his blood as a ransom for the souls of men. So Moses and Elijah were speaking very confidently of the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is it that there was still confusion in their hearts and minds? Verse 32, but Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. You know how many Christians miss important moments because they're so tired, weary, and worn out. When God reveals himself, man misses it. The disciples, listen, those three privileged men that went up on the Mount of Transfiguration nearly missed the moment because of weariness. And they're, they're struggling to keep their eyes open as Christ is revealed in his heavenly glory and Moses and Elijah are speaking with him. How can you miss this moment? And they almost did. But here's what God is doing. He is revealing and confirming once again that Jesus Christ was the very Son of God. Look what it says in verse 5 of Matthew 17. While he yet spake, behold. Now, actually, let's go back to verse 4 because this is important. Peter, in typical form and fashion, when he sees this take place, he begins to talk randomly. Hey, Lord, how about if we build three tabernacles? One over here, let's go with 10 by 10. We can pick up some rocks and cut some beams and bring up some wood, and we can build a tabernacle for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. We'll put yours right here in the middle, and there's on the side. And God had heard enough, so out of heaven he spoke, interrupting this nonsense. In verse 5, while he, Peter, yet spake, 
of the three tabernacles which he wanted to build, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. Do you see what's taking place? God wants to reveal to man that this is his son. This is deity. This is something special. Not just a miraculous prophet, but the very son of God. Now go back with me to Matthew chapter 26. In our text that we read this morning, Christ tells the disciples, she know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, the son of man is betrayed. He'll be delivered to be crucified. I want you to see not just the misconceptions, misunderstandings, but the majesty of the Son of God as he goes up to Calvary, faces this mockery of a trial, is beaten, spat upon. Look at the king as he rules over the circumstances even of his death. Look at his statement. He says, you know that after two days. She said, I know when my death will take place. How it will take place, I will be betrayed. He knew his betrayer. He knew the form of death. He said he'll be delivered up there. He'll be betrayed to be crucified. And here's what I like. If you look at scripture, the wording of it, look what it says in verse 1. It came to pass, mark the word when. When Jesus had finished, there is no way that man was going to interrupt God's divine plan. When Christ had done exactly what he had set out to do, when he had finished his work and finished his sayings at the proper moment, when he had done these things, look at verse 3, then assembled together the chief. You're going to notice this in chapter 26. When Christ had put things in place, then man came reacting to his plan. Now, God's plan was unfolding here. God in the person of his son was moving um, everything toward the cross, arranging for it. And Satan, too, was moving his pawns into place. But little did he know he was simply fulfilling a greater plan, a greater purpose. And here was Christ, the king of kings, ruling over Satan, his uh, arch enemy, Look at verse 14 through 16 for just a minute. He was rolling over all the forces that were plotting against him, plotting his death. Verse 14, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said to them, Now, he didn't know verse 1. When? When Jesus had finished. Then Judas went. Not a moment before. According as was prophesied in the Old Testament that a close friend would betray him. Here's what Christ said. Keep your finger once again in Matthew 26. Go with me to John chapter 10. Very famous words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17. Therefore doth my father love me. Why? Because I lay down my life. So what do we see? Highlighted once again. The complete foreknowledge of his death, the unwavering commitment to Calvary, but his complete control over these details. He said, I'm the one that will lay down my life that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. 
What I want you to see this morning is what was taking place was premeditated, pre-planned, prepared. Although man thought they had a perfect plan and they were going to come and surprise the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing that takes place here surprised him. Matter of fact, look what it says in John 18, 4. Jesus, therefore, what's the next phrase? Knowing all things. He knew all things that should come upon him went forth. Now, before Judas betrayed him, he knew Judas would betray him. Matter of fact, in Matthew 26, when they're at the Lord's Supper and he says, one of you will betray me, Peter looking at John as he was laying on Christ's breath, Peter nudging John and saying, ask him. Hey, ask him who it is. And John dies. Lord, who, who is it that will betray you? Uh, and he said, I'll identify him with the sop. And even when Judas said, is it I? In front of the other disciples, the Lord said, yes. You're the one. You're the man that will betray me. Christ knew everything that was taking place. He knew he'd be scourged. He knew he'd be spat upon. He knew he'd be beaten with the cat of nine tails. He knew he'd be... Uh, he'd take 39 lashes. He knew he'd have his hands nailed to that cross. He knew he'd be crucified between two thieves. He knew all of that. Now, let me ask you this. Why didn't he, before he was ever arrested, before he was ever brought to trial, before he was ever condemned to death, why didn't he back up? Why didn't he flee? Because he had a purpose in mind and a commitment to the cross and he was ruling over these details. Look what it says back in Matthew 26, verse 51. When they come to arrest him, Peter, in a panic, pulls out a hidden sword that he took from his garments. And behold, one of them, which was with Jesus, verse 51, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck a servant of the high priest, smote off his ear. Now let me ask you, how do we react in a moment of crisis? usually out of control. How did the Lord Jesus Christ act in a supposed moment of crisis? When Peter's pulling out his sword and cutting off a man's ear, there is Christ lovingly, unconcerned about himself, reaching down. He could have said, it's just an ear. It's just an enemy. It's just a slave. He reaches down, reaches out, heals this man. That's the majesty of of the Lord Jesus Christ in the moment of crisis knowing what's going to take place. Now go back with me to verse 3, verses 2 and 3. He chose the day. He chose the hour. He said, ye know that after two days. Now, they were consulting in verse 4 that they might take Jesus and kill him. Verse 5 says, but they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Typical politicians appearing to appease the people, but simply seeking their own desires, their own will. But as they schemed and dreamed and plotted and sought to take the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, little did they know that God already had a perfect plan in place, and he said it will take place on the Passover. You know the meaning of the Passover. God had already put everything in motion and there was a profound and eternal significance to the Passover. You remember back in Exodus chapter 12 as God sent the plagues and the last thing that happened upon Egypt 
was the slaughter of the firstborn and he had said if you take a spotless lamb and you slay that lamb and put the blood of that lamb over the doorpost that death angel will not slay your firstborn now you know the symbolism was fulfilled in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ but I think often when we read the scripture and think about his death, burial and resurrection we don't concentrate enough on the details let me ask you why thinking about what took place the scourging why could he not just have been crucified why the crown of thorns why did they cast lots for his garments why did they why did God Almighty allow him to be spat upon why God was in control of every single one of those details. Look what it said in Luke chapter 18. Christ was ruling over his kingdom even in the moment of his death knowing he had complete knowledge, complete foreknowledge of what was about ready to take place. But look what it said in verse 31. Then he took unto him the twelve and said to them, this is before his crucifixion. Behold, we go to Jerusalem. All things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. He shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, shall be mocked, spitefully entreated, and spit it on. They shall scourge him, put him to death. The third day he shall rise again. Do you see the details that he's given to the disciples? Why was he allowed? Why did he allow man to spit on him? Do you understand the significance? The very fact, if you go back in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 15, speaking of the unclean, the laws of the Jews, and how if a man that is unclean touches anything, sits on something, lays on anything, drinks from a cup, eats from a plate, and someone else follows him touching those things he touched, it makes that person unclean. Let me ask you something about the lovely Son of God. Was there anything in him that was unclean? He was the spotless, the sinless Lamb of God. But everything about his crucifixion was symbolic of what was taking place as he took our sin upon himself, becoming sin for us. You know what the Bible says in verse 8 of that very same chapter? That if unclean man would spit upon a clean man it made that man unclean you thought about the Lord Jesus Christ the holy righteous sinless spotless Lamb of God allowing man wicked and filthy and vile and vulgar that he is unclean spit upon him that was clean making him unclean He was not only allowing this to happen, but putting these things into place so we could understand what he was doing for us out of love, kindness, and compassion. Look what it says in John 19, verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments, made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. Well, why would it even mention these things? Why did Christ have a seamless coat? Well, that was the vesture. 
the garment of a priest and he was doing the work of our high priest. He was about ready to go to Calvary, atone for our sins. He was made our high priest and they took his garment. Look what it says. Verse 24, they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it. Why would they not rend his garment? Little did they know they were simply fulfilling Bible prophecy. There was a problem for a high priest to have his garment rent, according to Leviticus, disqualified him from being the high priest. That garment was not supposed to be rent. So as they stood there and said, let's rip this apart and hand it out and each one of us take home a piece. There was only one problem. They could not break the scripture. God said, you will fulfill the scripture that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith they parted my raiment among them and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did according to the scriptures. You say, what's so unique about that? Go back to Matthew 26. Remember, according to Levitical law, a high priest that ran his clothes was disqualified from being high priest. So during the trial, the scandalous mockery of a trial, verse 62, the high priest arose and said to him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses against thee? Uh, but Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, this man claimed to be the high priest, but he was looking at the high priest of our profession of faith. The Son of God, the man that would make atonement once and for all for the sins of man. And they take that seamless garment and cast lots. Instead of parting it, ripping it, they would simply cast lots for it. Hold on for a second. Look at verse 65. Then the high priest rent his clothes. You just disqualified yourself from being the high priest. Oh, folks, if I could get you to understand the scripture this morning, that nothing that took place around the crucifixion was accidental or out of order. Everything was divinely orchestrated and planned by Almighty God. In his foreknowledge, he knew what would take place. He submitted himself and said, I came offer myself for the sins of mankind. Matter of fact, look what it says in verse uh, 52 when Jesus tells Peter to put up his sword into his place for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Look what he says. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? How then? He said if I were to do this how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? He knew what was going to take place. Verse 56, all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Yeah, there was a spiritual battle taking place, but you know who's in 
total control. The Lamb of God. The Son of Man. The Majestic Prince. I want you to see his meekness for just a minute. Go back to verse 59. The chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. Now, all of us know when someone speaks falsely against us, it is our natural tendency to react in a very angry fashion, in a very unrighteous, ungodly, hurt and frustrated form to retaliate. How does the meek and lovely son of God respond to these false witnesses. Verse 61, this fellow said, I, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. That's the son of God. That's the Lord Jesus Christ in meekness. Go with me to John chapter 18. It adds a detail to this moment. John 18 verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered him and said, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple. Whither the Jews always resort and in secret have I said nothing. He said, listen, I have nothing to hide. My ministry was very public. I in the synagogues, I in the temple, I with the Jews have preached and taught and done my miracles. Nothing was done in secret. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, think about this. One of the officers, a lowly officer present which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand. The creator of the universe. The maker of all men. The reigning king. The God of heaven and earth. Standing in the presence of mere mortals. Says. Nothing about the false accusations. His only reply is. I have done nothing that I need to defend. I have done nothing in secret. Ask my followers. They will tell you who I am and what I've done. An officer standing by smites him in the face. Can you imagine if he were not meek? He could have thought a thought and watched that man fall lifeless to the ground. Spoke in a word, lifted a finger in retaliation, kept his heart from beating one more moment. But in meekness, Jesus answered him and said, Can you imagine this? The Creator being struck in the face by the creation, God being struck by man. And his only words are these, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Can we fathom what is taking place? Can we for a minute understand that this was God in the flesh submitting himself 
to man because he had a plan. And his plan was the salvation of all mankind. Look what it says in Luke 23. It's very obvious why he came, why he gave his life, why he submitted himself to this kind of mockery and cruel torture. Luke 23, verse 34, Then said Jesus, as he hangs there on the cross, Father, forgive them. He didn't come to heal the sick. He didn't come to raise the dead. He came to forgive the sins of mankind. And although others were there, verse 35, deriding him and saying he saved others, let him save himself, uh, he couldn't do both. He made a choice. As you see one man choose salvation, the other one reject salvation, we do know its purpose. And let me say this this morning. It's hard to believe that God would be made flesh and come and give his life. Now, here's the key to all of this. He gave himself. This was not forced upon him. This wasn't an order from headquarters. He gave himself for our sin. Here's where man, because he doesn't understand the crucifixion, he doesn't understand the wickedness that's in his heart. He doesn't understand the evil that is sin because that sin caused God to send his only son, shed his blood, his ransom for our souls. Who are we? Who is man to be so proud to say, I don't want your death. I refuse your gift. I don't care about your shed blood. Who is man so proud to resist one day, one moment, the gift of eternal life? To think that man, so many in pride, never been born again, but because they sit in a church where the gospel is preached, feel the conviction. But their pride says, don't let anyone else know you're not saved. Don't let anyone else ever come to the knowledge that you're not born again. And in pride, we would reject the greatest gift that's ever been offered. To think the man would ever have a second chance or that God would ever allow us, having understood the gospel, to wait a day. Once we truly comprehend the gospel, and there's a clarity in our minds concerning what Christ did for us and the condemnation of our sin. Isn't it amazing to think that God would say, I'll give you two days to think about it. We wouldn't do that with our own children. We wouldn't offer them an amazing gift and say, we'll give you time to think about this. You'd say, you can accept this and be thankful, or you can have the offer taken off the table. But God that has given his son, allowing man to say, I'll give you 50 years. I'll give you Sunday after Sunday, month after month, year after year. I'll give you all the time you need until the moment of death. I'll give you a chance. Now, here's really the question. Go with me to Galatians chapter 2. Because the message this morning is found right here, not in Matthew 26. That was simply an introduction to the thought. 
Galatians 2. Oh, how quoted, how often mentioned in Christianity are the words of Paul. When he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith. Now look at these next words. Of the Son of God. Now this is key. If, if, if you missed the rest of the message this morning, if, you, if you'll help me out and concentrate on these words. The Son of God who loved me. And what was the result? That love was so deep, so complete, so thorough, so profound. He loved me and as a result gave himself for me. So think about this. Jesus Christ in the heavens, coming to earth, knowing what would take place. He gave himself to Judas to be betrayed. He gave himself to the high priest to be condemned. He gave himself to his mockers and to those men to spit upon him. Everything was rich with symbolism. Even the crown of thorns, thorns representing the curse of sin. Did it ever dawn on you that as man wove together that crown of thorns, that curse of sin? What's Galatians say? He became a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone hangeth on the tree. Where would they place the curse of sin? On the head of the Savior. All divinely orchestrated and planned. But Christ chose that knowing what he would suffer, knowing the rejection, knowing for 33 years they wouldn't even understand that he was the Messiah. Knowing all of those things, he came and gave himself. His love was so great. He gave himself for us. Now let me ask you two or three questions and we'll be done. Number one, that love, that death, that life, that blood, that salvation offered, why would you hesitate a moment to be truly born again? Why would you reject that for a single day? Why would you allow your pride as an obstacle in your path keeping you from having the free gift of eternal life? But here's the next question. You look at our Savior, you understand these words. He loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave. He loved us so much that he gave himself for us. Now, doesn't that demand something from us? Puts a new meaning to Galatians 2.20. Because if he loved me so much, knowing what he would have to suffer, knowing the cross, knowing the shame, knowing that he'd have to become sin for me, knowing all of that, he was purposed committed to becoming my sacrifice his love meant giving himself for me so shouldn't my love be reciprocal and if I love him shouldn't I be willing to give myself 
for him. And what would be my motivation? Why do many quit in the Christian life? Because their love is not the motivation of their life. Their love for Christ doesn't lead them to give themselves for him. They are here to serve with something in mind, some benefit, some pleasure, some gain, some profit, some miracle, some special blessing. The favor of God, but their motivation is not loving him and as a result, giving myself for him. Because knowing, hold on for a minute. Let me give you a little foreknowledge. Oh, nothing like the foreknowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We simply can't know those kind of details. But we do know that he said, if any man will follow me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, right? And follow me. Now, here's what we don't like. The foreknowledge of the crucifixion that is the Christian life. Because a crucifixion means false accusations. A crucifixion means mockings. A crucifixion means people are going to gather and say things they shouldn't say. A crucifixion means being abandoned, hurt. So in the Christian life, today's Christianity has totally left out the cross. Oh, thousands are being preached to this morning about the excess, the luxury, the pleasure, the grace, the blessings that come with being a child of God. Well, I hate to break the bad news. Christ taught something about self-denial and living a crucified life. Here's how Paul made the crucified life such a successful life because he said, I am crucified with Christ. And he was. man that was stoned to death, thrown out of city, chased from place to place, under-supported, lied about, constantly having the Jews follow him from city to city and stir up the, uh, the multitudes and run him out. And even when he went back to Jerusalem, the disciples questioned the work he was doing. He was living the crucified life, but he understood something because he closes it by saying, who loved me, the son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And as we look at the crucifixion of Christ, here's what you're going to see. Christ knowing all things loved me so much he said I won't avoid one step one part one piece of the crucifixion because my love no one will force this upon me no one will drag me into trial and when they smite me I will not retaliate when they mock me I will not withhold forgiveness I'll take it all because I love you, I'll give myself for you. Let me ask you this. Can we say we love him and yet refuse to give ourselves for him? 
You know what keeps us from doing that? It demands a crucified life. Preacher, you know, if I serve God, some bad things are going to happen to me. If you don't serve God, some bad things are going to happen to you. If I do right, some bad things are going to happen to me. If you do wrong, some worse things are going to happen to you. The pain of sin and the consequence of unrighteousness is much graver than any suffering that you might or might be inflicted upon you by the world or the devil or your own flesh. Listen, God has a plan for you and it does include the cross. It does include the crucified life. But at some point as Christians, we have to make a decision. Just as Christ said, I love them and as a result, my love motivates me to give myself for them what if we as Christians stood up today and said God I love you enough to give myself for not capital city not a church not a pastor not a plan not a program but I love my Christ enough to give myself for him what he did for me is what I'll do for him.